0: About girls chased away by garlic and vampires shrinking from crosses. She kidnapped young girls and kept them chained to give blood. Blood for her to bathe in and drink. And she bit them everywhere. No. And then she pushed white-hot pokers into their faces. And when they parted their lips to scream, she shoved the flaming rod up into their mouth. Stop it. Blood. Beautiful red blood. Stop it. My legs stop. Hello again, I'm Annie Rose Malamet, and you're listening to Girls Guts and Giallo. This week I'll be talking about one of my all-time favorite films, Daughters of Darkness from 1971, directed by Harry Kilmall. If you follow me on social media or you know me in real life, you're probably aware that I'm obsessed with lesbian vampires, so I'm excited to finally be discussing one of the grandmothers of lesbian vampire cinema. Um, I have a free case of laryngitis that won't go away, probably because I speak for a living, so please excuse my raspy voice. Before I get into the movie, I wanted to take a moment to talk about my Patreon and shout out some of my new subscribers. I'm creating a podcast completely on my own that explores the feminine and subversive cinema. I write, record, edit, host, and promote this podcast completely on my own. I also have a teaching job, so working on this podcast in combination with teaching and commuting takes up a lot of my time. It's a labor of love, but of course, generating some funds would enable me to make even better content more often. I don't have any sponsors and I'm not working for a big media company. I'm making this podcast because I believe that we truly learn more about our culture and ourselves when we examine how marginalized identities have historically been portrayed in film. By focusing on problematic or controversial films, I hope to open up a dialogue for more complicated conversations. Please support if you agree and if you wanna see more episodes of this podcast. You can find my Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgutsandjalo. One of the benefits of supporting the Patreon is receiving a shout out on the podcast every month. So here are some of my new subscribers. My good girl, Susan Sunday, Sam, Natalie Ramirez, my coworker Michael Carroll, hi Michael, Marion Violette, Maria de Paula Vasquez, my dear friend Laura Marciano, Kaya Hildebrand, my beautiful childhood friend Julia Levine, someone who goes by JL, Danny Reed Rodriguez, who I had the pleasure of meeting in LA, Chris Hampton, and my friend Allie Fasanella. Thank you all so much for helping me maintain this podcast. Your support is so, so valuable. I expect to be sending out other benefits by July 1st. So look out for those in your email. Patreon only charges on the first of the month and they recommend that I don't send out my benefits until the first of the month. So that's when that's going to start happening. And happy Pride to all my LGBTQ plus siblings out there. Because this is Pride Month, I wanted to make sure that the rest of the movies I covered this month have queer themes and characters. Next week, I'll be doing an episode on cruising with my friend and artist Pacifico Solano, which is going to be very good, so watch out for that. I wanted to talk a bit about, before I get into the movie, why I'm so obsessed with lesbian vampires. Growing up, I always identified with the villains I saw in horror movies. I think a lot of queer people did because villains are so often queer-coded. Villains are generally outsiders. They can't exist in polite society. And that is also something many queer people relate to. This is especially true in vampire films. I honestly could never understand why the main character would not choose the eternal youth beauty and desire that the vampire was offering them. And of course, living in gothic splendor was also a giant plus for me. I came to vampire films from the movies of the 90s because I'm a child of the 90s, like Interview with the Vampire and Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it wasn't until later when I had been exploring my queerness for quite some time that I discovered the figure of the lesbian vampire. These figures were beyond erotic to me. They captured my imagination completely. Women are so conditioned to allow men to project sexuality onto them, to be passive receptacles for their desires, that I think a lot of young lesbians growing up cannot fathom the idea of a beautiful woman desiring them so completely that she's driven to obsession and a need to literally consume her victim. Lesbianism obviously excludes men. So as lesbians, we have to figure out a way of existing that we have no models for. This includes our eroticism and our desires. The pure eroticism of the lesbian vampire very much appeals and appealed to me. And then of course, there are also the BDSM connotations inherent in a vampire narrative. The vampire wishes to dominate and consume the victim. And as an out kinky freak, of course, I'm drawn to this aspect as well. Many lesbian feminists have considered the figure of the lesbian vampire to be homophobic and problematic. She furthers the predatory lesbian trope and confirms the idea of the lesbian as a social outcast, a freak who lusts after unsuspecting good heterosexual women. And it is true. That most lesbian vampire representations have been written by men. So this is a fair reading. However, the power and eroticism of the lesbian vampire endures and cannot be denied. There's a reason that she resonates with so many queer people. And there's a lot of scholarship out there about this on lesbian vampire tropes. And it's too much to really get into here. Um, I'm going to include recommended readings in my Patreon newsletter. I did want to read you this quote, though, by Andrea Weiss from her essay, Vampires and Violets. The lesbian vampire is the most powerful representation of lesbianism to be found on the commercial movie screen. And rather than abandon her for what she signifies, it may be possible to extricate her from her original function and reappropriate her power. I'm so cold. The sun rises in a few hours. So now that I've covered that, let's get into the juicy details of Daughters of Darkness. Yay. <laughs> Other titles include Les Lèvres Rouges. I'm sorry, I have a fucking horrible accent. Um, in France and in Belgium, Le Rouge aux Lèvres. The former literally translates as the red lips, and the latter as the red on the lips. And in the Netherlands, Dorst Njär Blood, meaning bloodthirst. It's a 1971 Belgian horror film with dialogue in English, which is unique for European films of the time, which were typically dubbed. The plot is really typical for lesbian vampire films. Basically, a young couple is taking a holiday at a strange European location when they meet a gorgeous and mysterious woman, a vampire, who takes an interest in the young wife and becomes obsessed with possessing her. A battle for her soul between the vampire and the husband ensues. And typically the heteroman is victorious, but not in Daughters of Darkness. We see these plots again and again, um, like in films like Shiver of the Vampires. It's a very typical plot line. The lesbian vampire in these films is usually some iteration of one of three quote unquote famous vampire women, Uh One of the most popular is Carmilla from Sheridan Le Fanu's short story of the same name. Dracula's daughter or consort, which obviously like has no basis in reality or even in the original Dracula story. But it's just a it's kind of a spinoff that started with Dracula's daughter from 1936. And the very real Elizabeth Petori the famous Hungarian countess who supposedly bathed in her maidservant's blood to maintain eternal youth. And this is the iteration that appears in Daughters of Darkness. The Elizabeth Bathory, Bathory, excuse me, iteration is very popular because it really highlights the predatory nature of the lesbian vampire and it also grounds it in historical reality. Countess Elizabeth Petori is played in this film by international film star Delphine Serig, who's absolutely gorgeous in this part. Delphine was a Lebanese-born French stage actress and film actress and a film director and feminist. She's best known for her starring role in Chantal Ackerman's 1975 feminist masterpiece, Jean Dillman. I think Sareg's background and status as an outspoken feminist is very important here to give the film some context. She certainly would have been highly conscious of the messages about women she was putting out there by choosing certain roles, so I believe she probably saw this representation as an important one. After all, even the title Daughters of Darkness suggests a kind of sisterhood. Harry Kummel was thrilled to have her in this film. At first, she didn't want to accept the role, but her husband encouraged her to as she, he was obsessed with comics and graphic novels and thought it would be great for her to star in a film with horror themes. In the BBC documentary Horror Europa, Kummel said that he deliberately styled Delphine Seyrig's character after Marlena Dietrich and Andrea Rowe, who plays Countess Battori's consort, after Louise Brooks. Because the vampire character of Elizabeth Batori is also a demagogue, Kimmel dressed her in the Nazi colors of black, white, and red. Friend of the podcast, critic of Camille Paglia, wrote about this movie in her book Sexual Personae in 1990. I'm joking, obviously. It's just that Camille Paglia keeps coming up and I find that hilarious. See the episode on Basic Instinct I did with my friend Sarah. Uh, Camille Paglia wrote, A classy genre of vampire film follows a style I call psychological high gothic. It begins in Coleridge's medieval Christabel and its descendants, Poe's Lygia, and James's The Turn of the Screw. A good example is Daughters of Darkness, starring Delphine Serig as an elegant lesbian vampire. High Gothic is abstract and ceremonious. Evil has become world-weary, hierarchical glamour. There is no bestiality. The theme is eroticized Western power, the burden of history. So clearly both Comel and him And himself and critics see this film as a critique of European despotism and aristocracy. In fact, vampires are often used as a vehicle in literature and film for criticizing the decadence of the upper class. Bram Stoker's Dracula was, after all, largely an illustration of the English fear of other hedonistic and seductive Europeans stealing away good English women. European landscape is definitely a motif here, as the film opens with a shot of a train passing through the Belgian countryside, set to the incredible score by Francois de Roubaix. Inside the train, we see a straight, white, typical European couple having sex, so immediately the film is very erotic. There's this gorgeous violet filter over the whole scene, which adds to the dreaminess of it all. We learn that their names are Valerie, a wholesome 70s blonde played by Danielle Ume, and Stefan played by John Carlin. And they've only just gotten married. There is some talk of Valerie being nervous that Stefan's mother won't approve of her, as his family are a bunch of old-school European aristocrats who supposedly are not going to be happy that Stefan has married this commoner. The newlyweds arrive at a very empty and opulent hotel in Ostend to camp out for a while. Valerie is wearing an amazing white leather coat with shearling trim and white boots. I have to shout out the costumer here, Marie-Paul Pédignot. The costuming in this movie is truly something to be held and part of what makes this film such a standout in the genre, and I think that the costuming often mirrors what the characters are feeling in certain scenes. Valerie is pestering Stefan to call his mother at their home, Chilton Manor, and tell her the news of his marriage. Um, But he hands the old bellboy a note asking him to pretend like no one will answer the phone there. So that's pretty sketchy and speaks to the class anxieties at play here. Actually, we get a lot of early signs that Stefan kind of sucks. Even in the train car after the couple has sex, he jokes to Valerie that he doesn't love her, and his shittiness will definitely become more of a thing as the movie progresses. It's a big theme. Countess Batori arrives at the hotel in the middle of the night. I really cannot emphasize how stunning Delphine Serig is here. Her platinum blonde hair is in a curled 30s coif. She wears a black veil and a shiny black leather coat with black fur trim that mirrors Valerie's white outfit, marrying together marrying them together visually as, like, the dark and the light. And her lips are just so wet and ripe and red and really just stand out from her pale face. The bellboy is immediately mesmerized by her, insisting that she stayed at this hotel many years before when he was a young boy, but that she looks no different, and how could it be? But it cannot be. My mother, perhaps. Of course, she shrugs it off. She arrives with her secretary, quote unquote, in tow, the lusciously full-lipped Ilona, played by Andrea Rowe, or Rao. I, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, and I'm probably butchering everybody's names here. The countess spots the young couple and is immediately taken with them. Ilona is jealous, and in their room, they have a very sexually charged scene where Ilona lays in the countess's lap as the countess sues and pets her. Isn't she beautiful? He have not stopped talking about her. Did you see her skin? Her lips? She's leaving tomorrow. By that time, many things can happen. Come here. Also, the Countess is wearing an amazing purple feather robe in this scene, which is like to die for. And if someone will replicate it for me, please let me know. Ilona is obviously tormented by her vampirism, wishing to be human again. This reminded me of uh, Dracula's Daughter, which set the precedent for the tormented female vampire. And if you want to hear me talking about that film, I'm on an episode of Blumhouse's podcast, Attack of the Queer Wolf, discussing it with some other amazing queers. So shout out to Attack of the Queer Wolf plug here. Listen to that podcast. And if you're in L.A., um, I believe they're recording an episode live on Sleepaway Camp 2. Do not miss it. Go, go, go. The next day, Valerie and Stefan are in bed reading the paper when they see a news story about how young girls in the area are turning up murdered with their throats slashed. Gee, I wonder who's doing that. This is another film and. Another theme in a lot of vampire films, Um, the vampire arrives in town and all of a sudden, all of these young girls are turning up um, with their throats cut and their blood drained. Uh, Later, the couple are out exploring the city and they notice a crowd gathered around what appears to be a crime scene. Of course, another young girl has turned up dead with her blood completely drained from her body. Stefan talks to a man at the scene who we later learn is a retired detective determined to crack the case. He's following the Countess around Europe, almost like a Van Helsing figure. So that's another thing that happens in these films is there's usually always a kind of Van Helsing figure who's determined to capture the vampire. He alone knows that something is wrong. Something's up. Stefan is determined to see the corpse for some reason. He's intrigued and fascinated by it. Valerie tears him away and in a rage, he hits her and she falls to the ground. So this is when we really start to realize that Stefan is bad news. In the car on the way back to the hotel, Valerie accuses Stefan of almost being turned on by the corpse. So this is the point where I started to see Stefan and the Countess as mirrors of each other. They're both vaguely some kind of European aristocrat, and they are both bloodthirsty, which is obviously highly symbolic and emblematic of attitudes against the upper class, and their benign cruelty towards those lower on the food chain. After all, the real Countess Batori murdered lower class women who served her, not her fellow gentry. So she really acts very symbolically in these films, the the real figure of the Countess Bathory. Don't lie to yourself. You were pleased. It gave you pleasure. You actually enjoyed seeing that dead girl's body. And you enjoy telling me. Back at the hotel, Stefan and Valerie join the Countess for dinner. She is wearing an incredible flowy red dress that is to die for. Uh, which is very indicative of her emotional state in this film. She's really, like, riding her high horse. She thinks, like, that this is in the bag and um, the seduction is in the bag and she's uh, probably recently fed. Um, and it's she also is going to talk a lot about her inclinations in this scene. Valerie is entranced by her and asks how she stays so young, The countess has this great line where she says, Oh, it's very simple, a very strict diet, lots of sleep. Vampires in film always love to make little jokes that hint at their vampirism. Alona also appears and then leaves, but not before Stefan devours her with his gaze. So he's already lusting after her. He's already got a wandering eye. Then one of the most interesting scenes in the film happens where the countess tells Valerie of her distant ancestor, the infamous Elizabeth Batori. Stefan is well acquainted with the story and him and the Countess begin to recount all the gory details of the torture together while the Countess begins to stroke him, both becoming more and more turned on by the idea of torturing young girls. They're basically on the verge of orgasm. She kidnapped young girls and kept them chained to give blood, blood for her to bathe in and drink. No. And she hung them up by the wrists and whipped them until their tortured flesh was torn to shreds. The scene emphasizes the similarities between Stefan and the Countess and their violent, erotic inclinations. Valerie is not pleased and runs back to her room, where she is scared by the naked figure of Alona on her balcony, although she doesn't recognize her. She doesn't know that the figure is Alona, but we, the audience, know. Valerie's screams frighten Ilona away and draw the attention of Stefan and the Countess. Valerie and Stefan snuggle as the Countess goes back to her room. I was also just like, what the fuck here? <laughs> like, it kind of shows that Stefan can do anything. Like, he can hit Valerie, he can flirt with other women, and she's not going to do anything about it. Um, so the Countess goes back to her room to attend to Ilona, who's on the floor naked, writhing in hunger. Ilona is sort of like a female Renfield to the countess's Dracula. She's not as controlled. Um, I don't even know if she's really supposed to be a vampire. Like, it's kind of ambiguous, like kind of how Renfield is something else and Dracula is the real vampire. The next day we get this very strange scene where Stefan finally agrees to call Chilton Manor. But instead of his mother answering, this very gay man (laughs) lounging in a hammock and eating flowers answers and belittles Stefan and his choices. And by the way, Stefan, be sure to tell the young woman that mother sends regards. We never actually find out who this guy is, and it haunts me, to be honest. There are some very sketchy things happening at Chilton Manor. Is this Stefan's lover, his creepy uncle? And... Although it frustrates me that it's ambiguous, I kind of appreciate the attempt here at hinting towards a larger legacy of familial trauma and secrecy. If anybody has any theories about who this guy is, um, hit me up on Instagram. Stefan is so riled up from this phone call that he attacks Valerie and beats her with his belt as a storm rages outside. In fact, as the film goes on and the couple becomes more and more enmeshed with the countess, Stefan's violence escalates. The film critic Jeffrey O'Brien has actually written about this, saying, At the film's core, however, is a deeply unpleasant evocation of a war of nerves between Serig's vampire and the bourgeois newlyweds into whose honeymoon she insinuates herself. Jaded age preys cunningly on narcissistic youth and seductiveness, and cruelty become indistinguishable as Serig forces the innocents to become aware of their own capacity for monstrous behavior. If Fassbender had made a vampire movie, it might have looked something like this. So the Countess is acting as a conduit for this couple discovering the darkest parts of themselves. After the beating, Valerie packs her things and attempts to leave for good, which I was like, "Yay, girl, get out of there. But the Countess intercepts her. At the same time, Alona comes to Stefan in his room and proceeds to seduce him. It really does not take much. Um, I She's actually there to seduce him, but he ends up seducing her. Valerie and the Countess walk through the strange... Oh, and her seduction is at the Countess's behest. Valerie and the Countess walk through the strange gothic halls of the hotel as the Countess elucidates to her all the ways that men are horrible pigs. (laughs) We can see some of her hypocrisy here. So she says Stefan only wants Valerie as a slave, but that's what the Countess wants. She wants to make Valerie into her new consort and pawn Ilona off on Stefan, presumably. Or maybe Ilona is just a distraction and maybe she thinks that all three of them are going to be together in this. Stefan loves me, whatever you may think. Stefan loves me, whatever you may think. Of course he does. That's why he dreams of making out of you what every man dreams of making out of every woman. A slave, a thing, an object for pleasure. Everything that she says Stefan is doing, she's doing, really. The Countess and Stefan are more alike than they think. There's a really beautiful scene where the countess kisses Valerie's hand and leaves a red lipstick mark behind. The cinematography by Edward van der Enden is incredibly striking all throughout the movie. Um, It's really, really beautifully shot. Meanwhile, Stefan and Ilona are having sex. And to be honest, it kind of looks like they're scissoring almost. <laughs> they're laying on opposite sides of the bed, like with Alona at the foot of the bed and... Uh, Stefan at the head of the bed, but they're still having sex somehow. Afterwards, Stefan is showering and beckons Alona to join him, but she's terrified of the water for some reason. We never really find out Why? He forces her into the shower and begins to sexually assault her, and there's an intense struggle where Alona cuts herself on Stefan's razor, which he actually had cut himself with earlier, so it was kind of a foreshadowing, and begins to bleed profusely as they struggle, eventually falling on the razor and dying with the naked Stefan on top of her. I don't know if that would actually kill someone, but you know, whatever, we're suspending disbelief here. Just at that moment, the Countess and Valerie return. The Countess is unfazed, telling the couple that they must hurry and dispose of her body, especially because this retired detective is on their trail. So the Countess really gives Alona no second thought here. She's like, okay, whatever, let's get this done. All three of them take Alona's body to the beach to bury her, which honestly seems like a pretty pretty bad place to bury a body. Uh, they make Stefan do all the work good, as they canoodle atop a sand dune, the countess spreading out her arms to enshroud Valerie, which makes her look like a bat against the night sky. It's probably my favorite shot of the film. Um, it's also kind of hilarious. It's just so obvious. It's just like, okay, vampires, <laughs> but it's also beautiful. In the distance, we see the relentless detective watching from afar. Um, I don't, fully remember but I'm pretty sure this is the last time we see him I don't think that that's followed up with again which good because I don't really care about that storyline back at the hotel Valerie rejects Stefan and retreats into the countess's room where she immediately calls her Elizabeth for the first time very intimately we see the two of them in bed with this red filter cast over them, implying that they have sex and share blood, making Valerie Elizabeth's new consort. Actually, there are a lot of fade to red instead of fade to black transitions here, which I love. It's like super heavy handed, but I'm here for it. On what I assume is the next night, and I don't think we ever see the daytime again um, until the last scene. We see Elizabeth dressing Valerie in a long white dress with a laced up front. Like it's kind of open and it's, you know, very sexy and laced up, almost like a sacrificial virgin. I find women dressing each other to be extremely erotic. And this scene is probably the root of one of my fetishes. Um, anyway, Elizabeth instructs Valerie to go to Stefan and invite him to dinner. So this is when uh, the countess starts to use their relationship as a power play for her. Stefan and Valerie have a scene together where Stefan tries to break her out of her trance, but she's just not interested, saying that she becomes a different person when she's around the countess. Of course she does. She's finally coming for once um, and not getting the shit beat out of her. Stefan and Valerie and the countess dine in Elizabeth's room. The countess is wearing... An absolutely fabulous silver sequins dress that twinkles in soft focus by the light of the black long-stemmed candles. It's insane how gorgeous the scene is. She says very tellingly, You sound as if you hate me. I want to be loved. I want everybody to love me. Which, as a recovering people pleaser and recovering codependent, I very much related to. In a very hot moment, she places a choker necklace around Valerie's neck, flaunting to Stefan that Valerie now belongs to her. So she's, like, cucking him fully now. In another show of dominance and power, the Countess tries to make Valerie kiss Stefan, but Valerie refuses. She doesn't want to. She's now too dedicated and in love with the Countess and has no interest in Stefan. Which, hilarious. (laughs) The Countess kind of tries to, like... Almost orchestrate a threesome between them. I think I had thought maybe that the Countess was interested in them both and having them both as her consorts. But now reflecting on it, I think that this was all intentional. Like I think that she knew Valerie wasn't going to be able to to kiss him anymore and that his masculinity would be wounded. And yeah, I just think that she, uh, you know, planned on getting rid of him all along. So Stefan's masculinity is extremely bruised by this because Valerie refuses to kiss him and be with him anymore. Um, and Stefan attacks Valerie because he's a fucking coward. And that's the only way he can show dominance over a woman. Um, and as she, he attacks her, she calls out for Elizabeth and uh, Elizabeth ends up killing him. And the women end up uh, sucking his blood together. They kill him in a really funny way with this glass bowl that they place over his face and it shatters. I don't. And it cuts his wrists. It's like fantastical. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, Elizabeth pushes Valerie's head down onto the wound to suck it. And it's extremely hot. With Stefan finally out of the picture, the women dump his body carelessly out of the car and drive off into the night Valerie is over the moon in the lust with the Countess and keeps begging her to put her fingers in her mouth as she drives away. I'm honestly getting turned on just talking about it. Soon. The border. The other side. Oh, Elizabeth. You forever. Your hand. Your hand. We oh, must this other day. Don't let the light catch me, Valerie, don't. I love the open displays of lesbian lust in this film. It's really sexy and hot and um, go watch it if you want that in your life because it's really good. Elizabeth implores Valerie to drive faster and the daybreak is coming and will kill them both. But as the sun rises, they are blinded and Valerie crashes the car, launching Elizabeth out of the vehicle and impaling her on a fallen tree as if on a wooden stake. Very symbolic. The car explodes and the countess immolates under the sun. It's a pretty gruesome scene, actually. Um, and then in the final scene, it some text appears that says a few months later and we see Valerie Wearing an identical outfit to the Countess. She survived and she's now taken on the persona of the Countess Batory, and she's seducing a young couple at another hotel. I actually like this ending. The Countess cannot live on because that would mean that Valerie is really just bouncing from one form of abusive relationship to another. Instead, the Countess acts as a liberator for Valerie from her abusive husband and has given her the gift of vampirism that frees her to wander around Europe as an independent creature of the night, free from the decorous licentiousness of the upper class partners who have so manipulated her. This is a unique ending for a lesbian vampire film, and I quite enjoy it. Most of them don't end this way. They usually end with the man victorious. So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as at Girls Guts and Jalo. You can follow my personal Instagram account at Fat Goth, F-A-T-G-A-W-T-H. You can also send me an email at Jalo at gmail.com new episodes of the podcast drop every Friday. I'll play us out here with some music from Daughters of Darkness. And until next time, I'm Annie Rose Malamud, and this is Girls, Guts, and Jello.